All right, everyone, welcome into the Sexy Ass Supercross podcast. I am your host, AJ Nix, and since this is the first episode, in case you were wondering, I'm really not sexy at all, uh, but this is a beautiful goddamn sport, and uh, it makes me feel sexy on the inside, and maybe I'm still naive enough to believe that it's what's in the inside that counts, uh, and I am feeling sexier than ever today uh, because, in my opinion, what we were treated to on Saturday night was the most exciting supercross spectacle or motor- motorcycle spectacle, period, for that matter, in the entire world. Yes, the first race of the outdoor season is exciting too, but it simply does not compare to the hype coming into Anaheim 1 following that three-month break. Uh, we're hungry for racing. We're deprived of it. We're, dare I say, borderline horny for it. Uh, and at least if we're not, then we need to consult a doctor. I mean, when they get together under the spotlights and it's in the home of where all these industry types set up shop, uh, there's just no other instance uh, where our sport is more elevated. And I'm happy to say that uh, last night did not disappoint at all. Saturday night gave us uh, all the chaos, uh, all the, the bar banging, all the uh, ups and downs that we could uh, ever hope to suspect, ever dare to hope for from an Anaheim one. And uh, there's such there's so much to talk about. Uh, I don't want to procrastinate uh, anymore. Uh, obviously, what we want to do is we want to get in and talk about uh, the most exciting race of the night, which I'm sure everybody can agree was the 450 main. It was completely unexpected, and even if you expected uh, two of the three guys that did end up on the podium to be up there in some order, the way that they got there or almost didn't get there, and the other contenders who made an appearance, uh, whose appearance may have been questionable, uh, just set this up for a level of drama and uh, unexpected turns of events uh, that I did not see coming. And I thought, I, ha- I was arrogant enough to believe that I had a pretty good idea of what was going to happen uh, before the gate dropped. And I was pleasantly surprised uh, that the entire night uh, proved me entirely wrong. But before we get into the 450 main, there's just so much else that we have to talk about. And what I want to do is I want to take some time and talk about the uh, track setup itself. I think uh, people take it for granted sometimes. Uh, they just want to jump right into talking about the action. And they ignore the fact that uh, the most unique thing about our sport is that whereas every other league, football, hockey, what have you, is set up so that every field of play, every arena, every court is exactly the same, which makes sense so that they can measure statistics and have uniform results and no one feels cheated or like the uh, rules changed. What we have in motorcycle racing is the benefit of having a completely different field of play every single day that the boys get suited up to race. And even though the tracks are sometimes criticized as being pretty similar for all 17 rounds, or at least all the baseball field tracks being basically the same prototype and all the indoor football tracks being uh, basically the the prototype too, 
Uh, I think there's a lot more variation than, than people sometimes appreciate. And I think it does determine which riders are going to be able to fly by on their strengths and which riders have a tougher time of perhaps overcoming areas where they, they struggle a little bit or struggle relatively in order to still be standing on the box uh, when everything's said and done at the end of the night and someone's got a neck burn. And I think Anaheim One did a great job this year of giving us a track that that was original, that did not fall into the cookie cutter box, uh, and that was quite frankly proved with some particular obstacles to uh, create challenges that many riders had difficulty uh, in overcoming. And uh, the track, man, it was just difficult in general as well. It was it was difficult everyone there were sections in there where uh only the top 250 guys were really able to uh surmount the most challenging obstacles and even they weren't allowed able to do it on every lap they were only able to do it when they set the rhythms preceding these uh particular jumps perfectly and even in the 450 class there were sections and we're going to talk about what these sections are where even the best guys were flubbing the rhythms and uh, having to double where a triple was intended or uh, doing something similar. And you just do not see in this day and age any factory guys uh, really struggle to hit the intended rhythm consistently or to hit the best uh, jump setup consistently. And I think the fact that they were struggling shows that the uh, track designers really tried to elevate this A1 even more than normal. Uh, to give us some anticipated drama. And lucky for us, uh, that's exactly what I've got. Now, we could talk about the track all day, but I want to narrow it down to three particular areas where I feel uh, the race really could have been won or lost and that uh, on their own merits presented some extreme level of difficulty uh, that makes it worthy of talking about and that made it so some riders were able to climb through the pack here and others were forced to drop off. Now, all three of these sections came pretty close to the beginning of the track. You jump over the finish line jump and you take that left turn, and then there's two sets of whoops in these things. You hit one set, you go around a turn, you hit that tunnel jump, and then you've got that second set of whoops. Now, uh, these whoops were uh, very varied in terms of the techniques that people use to get across them. You know, usually it's either faster to blitz them or it's faster to jump through them. And we saw all night where some riders were choosing to jump through them and some riders were choosing to just blitz right over the top. And we will talk about who those riders are. And the, the first set of whoops especially, it broke down badly over the course of the night and uh, some riders including the race winner Eli Tomac were capable of finding really unique ways to get through uh, the uh, modified whoops the broken down whoops uh, that saved them a ton of time uh, as opposed to their competition who were not able to figure out how to do that so the whoops played a, a big role in this and it looked like both sections were very short and it's unique because Anaheim one is known for having just these monstrous whoops 
whoops, where a short guy like me could go stand, you know, in the trough between two of them. And, and you'd think I left the arena. You wouldn't even be able to see the top of my head. And so it seemed looking at this two ostensibly meager sets that it wouldn't necessarily turn out to play a factor. And to the contrary, it absolutely did. Now, the second area that proved to be a huge factor was the first rhythm section, the one uh, immediately preceding uh, the second set of whoops. And the way this was set up was if you could carry enough momentum through the turn, which was hard because there were really deep ruts, then you could double up onto a tabletop, double off, and that set you up with enough momentum to hit this really big triple where the middle jump was really raised above the takeoff and landing so that you really had to get height to clear it. You couldn't scrub over it. And if you hit the tabletop before, you were able to carry the momentum over this triple and hit the second tabletop, which was actually a quad, and you could quad into the turn. But if you weren't able to set it up right from the beginning of the rhythm section by carrying momentum through that turn, you could not hit this triple with enough speed to actually manage the quad. And so you had to triple, triple instead, which meant you had to single into the turn and land on the berm and then spin the back wheel around. And it was taking a lot of time. And I think this was the most varied section and who was able to hit it consistently Saturday night. Even the best guys were struggling to quad this thing every time. And the guys who were not able to do so lost a lot of time. It was also a place where there were a couple extraordinary crashes, one in qualifying by Jason Anderson, which we'll get to in a second here, and obviously the one in the main event, which was where uh, Malcolm Stewart went flying. And that was because this rhythm section was so tricky. And in trying to build the momentum to hit that quad, uh, they they lost control of the bike going over the triple that preceded it or even prior trying to double on and off of the tabletop to uh, absolutely catastrophic consequences. But the fact that they were willing to risk those consequences to hit that quad indicates to you how much time could be made or lost in that spot. Now, the third and final spot we'll discuss is the section immediately preceding the rhythm section we just discussed. And this was kind of fun. This was for the fans. This was for the broadcast. And it was a triple, 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 triple section. It was a four by three. Uh, but the track designers didn't make these triples with these nice, even trajectories where you could carry a nice arc through the air and have time to set up and hit the next triple, you know, get your body position all squared up. They built these faces steep. The takeoffs were steep. The landings were steep, and the amount of uh, space they left between them to get that back tire on the ground and really uh, open the throttle and, and get some forward momentum were so limited that you absolutely had to time it perfect. And we saw, even in the main events, even from guys like Chase Sexton, they were not able every time by the time they got to the, the third triple in the section to have carried enough momentum to hit it cleanly. And they had to double or they lost speed coming down on top of the jump instead of landing all the way on the, the face of the landing. And there were times in the race where not only did it lose time, but it played a, a huge factor in, in letting guys catch up to other guys 
that were not able to nail this spot. Now, there was one guy that I noticed hit this spot uh, pretty much perfect every time, or if he didn't, then every other time he got it perfect, and it, he was just making it look textbook in a way that other guys weren't. Now, it might not surprise you to hear that this guy is Jet Lawrence, and I know that people uh, pump air in this guy's tires a, a whole fucking lot, and you're probably tired of hearing it. But the way he had the suspension working in that section he was the only guy that was consistently able to get enough drive and to stay low enough that he could uh, land both wheels down, have his weight forward on, on the first landing of that triple and still have time to uh, get that back tire spinning uh, to build momentum before he got to the face of the second jump. Other guys weren't able to make the entire distance, and so they were either tapping the back tire on the top of the landing jump, or they were coming in with their weight centered pretty far on the back of the bike, not as forward as they want it, because they don't want to endo if they come up short. And so they were having to uh, tap the back brake really hard and try to drop that front wheel at the last minute. And by the time that they were able to recuperate their balance, I mean, it only takes a split second for these guys, but they weren't able to get the gas on right away. And so they had to sort of blip it as they were coming up the face of the jump, which was sending them up instead of propelling them forward, making them come up short again. And it, it was a, a matter of accumulation. And by the end of the section, there was a lot of time to be made or lost, depending on whether you could really get that suspension to uh, compress and decompress in the short amount of time that the uh, narrow setup space allowed. Now, as for the rest of the track, obviously there were passes made. There were other areas where, uh, in the turns especially, uh, a lot of time could be made up and people were able to step outside of the narrow lanes allowed by the deep ruts and uh, really make some time up and get around the guy in front of them. But we simply can't talk about all of it. And I think we hit what were uh, the most impactful areas in terms of uh, the drama that we'll shortly discuss. So now that we've got that out of the way, I want to go ahead and, and talk about qualifying. I don't know if we're always going to get deep into the weeds on it, but I think there were a couple things that made uh, this year's Anaheim 1 qualifying certainly worth a brief discussion. Uh, one of those being, of course, that we haven't seen these guys for a really long time, and especially in the 450 class, we got guys like Adam Censorello coming back, who's been hurt for a long time. Ferrandis, who had an abysmal season indoors last year and who we're expecting to see more of. And then, of course, Kenny Roxon, who's on a bike. We didn't know for sure if it could go the distance and what his health status would be and, and all that stuff uh, going on with him, which we'll, we'll unpack as, as this goes on. Uh, but because we hadn't seen him for so long, I think there were guys that were more eager to make a statement with qualifying that were more concerned with it than they, they typically would be coming out uh, just trying to get into the night program. The other thing that made this particular qualifying session so interesting was that the track conditions at the start of the morning were absolutely fucking awful. 
it had rained overnight and you know with all the west coast tracks but especially with anaheim one the dirt is really hard packed and it doesn't really take rain all that well it doesn't absorb water all that well it pools up on the top of it it rained i think it's been raining in anaheim for days leading up to this event and it certainly rained before saturday it rained overnight on friday and the track crew was really struggling to make the track into something that was uh, palatable enough, rideable enough for anyone to even be able to get around it. By the end of free practice, uh, the conditions sort of looked like this. The jumps had dried off, and so the the takeoffs and landings were, were super hard packed. It was like these guys were just jumping uh, over concrete walls. You know, but at the same time, the turns had just turned into puddles, essentially, when these guys started out. And within uh, probably the first lap, deep ruts had been made, deep grooves. And uh, since it was, there was still water sitting loose on top of them, you couldn't really even dig your tires into them and pen it and get some momentum the way guys normally do, where they just throw the bike in there and, and, and just go for it as soon as they get it slotted in. They had to really baby the throttle the whole time, and it made it nearly impossible, at least at the start for uh, qualifying session one, it did make it impossible to hit all of the jumping obstacles the way that they were content intended. You simply couldn't build the momentum out of the turn uh, to accomplish the optimal sequence. And yet these guys also knew, in addition to qualifying, they were going to have to be able to hit these obstacles the way that uh, they were built to be hit if they wanted to be competitive during the night program and they were hoping that the track would be cleaned up enough that they'd be able to do that. And fortunately, by the end of the night, by the time, by heat race one, they had gotten things figured out and gotten things smoothed down so that we were able to get a, a nice race out of it. And I think that held for uh, every race the whole night long. But uh, in the beginning, guys were almost killing themselves trying to figure out how to hit these things in conditions that uh, did not make that task easy at all. And yet these guys are fucking rock stars. So they were able to go out there despite the adversity. And most of them were able to get it done. Now, when we look at the 250s in qualifying session one, it was Enzo Lopes that came down and, and put out the fastest lap time uh, with those gnarly conditions. Now, this is a dude you might not know as much about as some of the more uh, established riders in either class. I don't know a ton about him, but... You know, he raced uh, East Coast primarily in the previous years, and he went fifth in 20 and, and 22. And I know he was dealing with a, a recurring arm injury at the end of the last indoor season that uh, made it impossible for him to run the entire moto. He was losing strength partway through it. And so he missed the entire motocross season getting that worked out. But he's certainly someone that people in the know say has a lot of potential and they expect if he can get healthy that he's going to put out uh, greater performances uh, than he has been able to 
this far, you know, he's still a pretty young dude and, and, and seeing him jump out there and uh, taking the Q1 session in the gnarly conditions when that's certainly not the guy that you would have guessed coming into it to be first place on the box. Uh, that was really cool to see. And I was excited to see how he'd carry that momentum into the main event. And when we get there, we'll talk about it. But the, the outcome he got, both in the heat and the main, uh, were pretty fucking impressive. And you could see from the start of the morning uh, that this kid was really on it. Now, he didn't hold on to the top spot all day. When it came out to qualifying two, it was Austin Forkner who ended up taking the pole position, you know, beating out Jet, which I'm sure is something that uh, was really awfully important to him. You know, he's also got a whole lot to prove. You know, he's been plagued by injuries. He only did Foxway run outside last year, and he was only able to do four motos inside the, the year before that because he collided with Jet Lawrence in midair coming over the finishing jump and broke his collarbone had to miss most of the season. He did come back for a couple races, and he, he won in New England. He won in Foxborough, even though he hadn't been on the bike very much, and, and showed us the spark and the skill that uh, early on in his career had him pegged uh, to be a potential champion. So I was very curious to see how he'd come out and if he had a chip on his shoulder and he was eager to prove himself. And uh, boy, uh, were those suspicions confirmed because uh, there's no other way to say it. I've used the word a lot, but it was just fucking gnarly. Both qualified sessions. He was all over the place. You know, he was almost crashing multiple times a lap. He'd case a jump, he'd shake it off and he'd go out. He wouldn't even, you know, pace himself and set up for the next lap. He'd just twist the throttle again and uh, get that Kawasaki going. In the second qualifying uh, heat, which is uh, where he he got the pole position, there was a point, and it was in that first rhythm section we already talked about so much, where you got to maintain speed over that triple. He came off the triple, and he got cross-rutted, and he flew all the way over the tough blocks uh, into the triple, 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 triple section, uh, heading the opposite way. You know, he literally jumped onto a separate part of the track and he shook it off and was able to win. But even then in the morning when I was watching this unfold live, I was wondering whether his over-eagerness, the over-aggressiveness with which he was riding the bike would end up being a detriment to him as they went into the night show, if he'd potentially get himself in some trouble and, and face a catastrophic crash, possibly. Or, on the other hand, if it was really a good sign, because uh, although he did win in Foxborough, there were a few other times we saw him on the bike where he just looked, you know, and even before that collarbone injury, he had another severe injury he was coming from, he missed a lot of time for. And he looked, I don't want to say timid, I don't want to insult a professional rider like that, but he wasn't riding on the edge that uh, he's certainly capable of when he's at his finest. And I thought maybe the aggressiveness would actually turn out to be a, a harbinger of good things to come and would show that uh, once the conditions settled down, we were back to the old Austin Forkner, we were back to the healthy Austin Forkner. Now, if you've seen the 250 main, you know that... Uh, 
despite what happened in the morning, by the end of the night, his story had been written, and uh, this A1 ended up horrible for him. But uh, as heartbreaking as that was, we'll save that for when we uh, do discuss the 250 main. Uh, but like I said, he wasn't the only guy uh, looking sketchy out there early, and other guys that looked sketchy were, were definitely able to recover from it. You know, Jet went second uh, overall, combined qualifying, but he did crash in both sessions. You know, he had to get go get his his bars fixed up after one point, and it, it certainly didn't leave him with any injuries. But, uh, you know, he's uh, a lot more disciplined than he used to be. He's not really a guy that puts the bike down a lot, and certainly not in instances where he doesn't need to. He matured a lot over the course of the, the last outdoor season. And so the fact that we were seeing even him struggle to uh, acclimate to the uh, rough conditions I, I think is a testament to just how difficult it really was. Now, that's probably enough about the 250 qualies, but uh, maybe lastly, I'll just say uh, Pierce Brown went third after all, and uh, he's had a rough go of it lately. It, it, sounds, it feels like in motocross, you just supercross, you, you have to say that about everyone because uh, injuries and severe injuries are just so common but he's never really been able to come back long enough to build any sort of momentum to uh, do anything with that gas gas machine uh, that is probably rightfully expected of him given his talent. So going into the night show, I was expecting even coming into the season to see good things from him. And I thought his qualifying performance showed that perhaps he was going to finally show up and, and get an ending to his story that was more in line uh, for this season with the one that I'm sure he's envisioned. Moving on now, if you thought Enzo Lopes was an unexpected individual to claim P1 and qualifying one in the lights class, then you were probably equally surprised as I was by the man on the big bikes, you know, that in the premier class that came out and uh, claimed his pole position in qualifying one. And that was Marvin Muscan. It was the Frenchman, and he was excited about it because he has not been able to take pole in qualifying since sometime in the 21 season. He wasn't able to do it all last year, and we know that nobody's really been able to run good on, on a KTM. We know Coop was struggling. Uh, for years with it. And so we didn't know, we, we, you don't ever know if it's these guys or the bike. And that's what makes it so confusing when someone that you expect to be winning isn't able to do it. But Muscan was finally able to find his speed and he did it in the bad conditions, which is really surprising because the, the Frenchman is kind of known for being, you know, a, a great rider on, on tight technical stuff. He's not necessarily known as a guy that uh, just takes the gnarliest conditions and, and, and pens the throttle over. And yet that's exactly what he did, or he found a way to find some finesse, even in an arena where that was a problem for most guys. And obviously he didn't hold on to that time. You know, Sexton, in the second qualifying session, after they'd groomed the track and fixed it up a bit, came out, and he was able, he was the first guy that was able to beat a minute in the lap times. And I mean, they started at like 106 at the beginning of the first qualifying session. 
but he got it down there to 59 seconds and change. And he was the only guy throughout the course of the morning that was ever able to do this. Even Eli Tomac, who pushed hard to beat him, put his best time out at a minute and a little bit of change. Either way, those two times are pretty close, and I don't think anybody's surprised to see that it was Sexton and ET3 who came in 1-2 in qualifying, and I don't think anybody would be surprised to see them come 1-2 in, in pretty much everything throughout the rest of the season, or at least they wouldn't be surprised to see that before they'd seen the other contenders vying for their, their place this Saturday evening. But besides these two guys, there were a, a couple other great performances during the qualifying session that are probably worthy of note. Uh, Aaron Plessinger came out in, in Q1. He wanted it bad, and he came off the gate in first, and he led for several laps and did maintain the lead lap time for a while. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not expecting this guy to win this season. I'm not even really expecting him to get a lot of podiums, but I would like to see him up there occasionally. I think he's got that kind of talent. And I think most people would like to see him up there because he's just such a, a great fucking personality. There's really no one like him anywhere else in the sport or probably anywhere else on the planet. So, you know, kudos to him. Uh, and he did good in, in the main show too, and we will discuss him when we get there. Uh, so... That's two KTMs with Muskin on top that were doing really well. And for the third guy on the factory KTM team, let's talk about Cooper Webb. He went seventh. Now, I know that doesn't sound impressive and it doesn't sound like it's the start to the comeback season that you'd really want from him. But the guy is a terrible qualifier, all right? And I don't know if it's that he's bad at it or he just doesn't think it's important. Maybe he's just trying to get on the gate because he knows he's good enough to qualify in a heat race, you know, make it through to the main from pretty much any position. So maybe he's just trying to learn the track and he's less concerned with uh, putting up a lap time and, and being impressive and uh, making a preliminary statement. But for whatever reason, he's, he's just really bad at it in comparison to the other top guys and especially for someone who's a, a two-time indoor champion. So the fact that he even broke the top 10 to me is an indication not only that he could be on fine form coming into the evening, but that uh, maybe they'd finally done something with these uh, factory KTM bikes to uh, make them competitive enough that the riders they've got on them, that they're paying big money to, to race them fast, will actually be able to do it. Now, that's everyone that did really great in qualifying and let's talk about a guy who had a rough time real fast before we move on to the heat races and that is the number 21 they call him el hombre it's the man with steez it's jason anderson now if you didn't see the crash he had in qualifying you should go watch it because uh, it is fucking violent and despite what you tell yourself i know that you love violence all right there's a reason we live in a world where uh, MMA exists, okay? As much as we don't want to see these guys get hurt, we also can't find a way to look away when the television feed cuts to the carnage and plays it in replay and slow-mo again and again and again. You watch it six times, you'll watch it seven times, and you'll watch it eight if you can. And the fall this guy took, the fact that he could shake it off, he must have bones made out of titanium. 
Now, what happened? We've already talked about this section a bunch. It's the first rhythm section after the whoops. And he came in and he doubled onto the tabletop and he doubled off it, but he wasn't able to carry enough momentum and he wasn't able to preload enough to get all the way over that middle triple. He came down, he cased it hard, but he was going so fast that he wasn't able to prevent himself from keep on going, although the rhythm had already been compromised quite badly by that point. So he flies over the next tabletop. He's sitting on the handlebars by this point, weight all forward. And he just drives that front wheel into the face of uh, the middle jump of that quad section, goes right over the handlebars, somersault. And uh, he bounced up and did a lap, and then he went back and got the bike worked on a bit. And the uh, report was that he was absolutely fine. And I don't want to argue with what they say, but we know it's not in their best interest to disclose uh, a rider being hurt, period. And I just didn't see how anybody could come down that hard and at the very least not have some sort of severe bruising or stiffness that would give them difficulty, no matter how much Oxycontin or Toradol or whatever it is they use, uh, that they pumped him full of before the main event. And when we get to it and what happened in the fate of his evening, we will discuss whether a possible injury might have played a factor physically or maybe just psychologically, right? I know these guys are tough as nails, but it's got to be hard no matter how many times you've crashed to have a truly gnarly get up like that, uh, you know, before it's even uh, two in the afternoon and just dust it off and twist that throttle and pretend like it never happened. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's probably enough for all the foreplay. So uh, why don't we get into the evening racing here without any farther ado? Uh, 250 heat race one, in my opinion, the most fucking boring race of the entire evening, including the last chance qualifiers, which we might talk about because this time they were really fucking interesting, man. Uh, but as for this race, uh, maybe it's because a high standard was set by all of the other races, or maybe it's just because any race with Jet Lawrence in it is kind of already ruined from the fact that you know he's going to cross the line in one of the top three positions. All you could hope for is that someone can manage to beat him, probably just one person, and that's exactly what happened this evening. The one interesting thing about the race was that RJ Hampshire was able to jump out there early and hold on to it the entire way around. And what's more than that, especially when it comes to RJ Hampshire on the uh, Rockstar Husky, this guy cannot keep the bike off the ground. I, I think we all know that. He's very open about the fact that he rides on this edge. I mean, he's an intense dude. There was one race outdoors last year, right, where he crashed and took one of those like yellow mile markers, pierced through his lung, and he just had oxygen leaking out of him. A normal person would be done and he came back and raced the, the next week it he even practiced throughout the week uh, but he can't ride without that intensity and i don't mean he's like an eli tomac situation where without the intensity he's just a a top eight rider i mean he does not know how to approach it without that intensity and that usually leads to him overriding turns 
and putting the bike down or something else uh, altogether more violent and even more catastrophic happening. Well, it didn't happen tonight, and he didn't even look that close to, to having a slip, if I'm honest, even when Jet uh, was only a couple seconds behind him, closing in on him towards the end of the race. Uh, RJ didn't slow down, and he didn't speed up to try to increase the gap and do something silly. He just kept running his pace, and while Jet was able to make up some headway on him in the sec- first whoop section and uh, in the 4 by 3 rhythm section, he was not able to close the gap around the rest of the track. And it looked like uh, both Jet and RJ were running paces that were pretty damn even. Now, I know obviously you're going to say Jet's not trying to push him that hard. All he wants to do is get a decent gate pick for the main and uh, keep his clothes looking clean. But uh, you could tell that he did try to step it up a little bit. He wanted RJ, you know, the kid's got an ego as any rider does, and he does want to win. But once he realized that uh, he wasn't going to catch him in without uh, really turning up the tempo, he did just settle in. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't interested in closing the gap and, and taking that position if he could get it. Now, while this is good for RJ and that it shows he's got speed and could potentially match with him, I think it's also scary if you're anybody that's racing against Jet Lawrence because he was a hard enough guy. And we talked about this when we were talking about qualifiers earlier about how he matured. But he was a hard enough guy to beat when he just wanted to go out and win races because sometimes he'd crash and you could get him. But if he's now willing to put his ego aside and take whatever place he has to, and he's only focused on a championship, if he's got three of them now, and anything less than that uh, doesn't even get his uh, little willy agitated, then he's going to be so calm and collected, and he can win championships riding at 90%. And if he's going to approach it with a way that'll make him that consistent, I think everyone else is in fucking trouble, uh, as they probably were anyway already. So maybe it doesn't even make a difference. And I shouldn't even have tried to talk about it. Uh, a few other things that happened to that race, you know, Fullen goes third. And uh, I like the way the dude rides the bike, man. He uh, He's a big dude, but he looks really smooth. He just always has his weight in the right position. And he doesn't really have to force it or throw this thing around. And, you know, he's still getting good action on it, but he's always calm and controlled and seems like he always is all tucked in and has a nice center of gravity about him, just real smooth, real buttery. Um, But he hasn't really produced consistent results yet like you think his his skill would suggest he ought to be. So getting on the podium in the heat was good for him. Uh, Kitchen and Fourth, another guy that's uh, building real slowly that eventually... Uh, I expect to see some great things from, you know. I'm almost a little surprised that hasn't happened yet, uh, but he is uh, improving slowly. He's taking the Joe Shimoda route where you don't make any huge gains overnight, but you just keep chipping away at it, and eventually that manifests in some serious progress. Uh, because nothing else happened in this race, let's go ahead and talk about uh, Oldenburg went fifth, Mitch Oldenburg, and... Uh, all I'm going to say about him, I'm not going to congratulate him for the fifth because we know he's at least capable of that. But uh, let's give him the Steez Award, shall we? He had on this royal purple gear and these uh, teal fucking boots, man. The kind of color that would have looked fit on some uh, 
fancy pair of Jordans, you know? So we'll uh, hand that one out to him. Now, the second 250 race of the night, that was a little more interesting. Mostly, of course, because some serious drama ensued right after the whole shot, essentially. It was in the very first turn of the race after the first rhythm section and going over the final, trying to roll over the final jump of the section, he goes over the handlebars and he goes over the handlebars hard, okay? And he did not even try to get up. He was still down on the ground the next lap when the guys came around. They had the medic flags out um, and they took him for evaluation and he ended up going to the hospital and they released him and he put out uh, a post on Instagram or one of the social media sites saying that he had no serious injuries, he was just a little bruised, and he was going to be back real soon. But uh, if I was willing to say that there's no way Anderson got out of uh, his qualifying tumble unscathed, then there's no way I'm going to say that Pierce Brown didn't do damage to some essential part of uh, his anatomy, okay? There's just no fucking way. I mean, he was absolutely sprawled out there. He was rolling around in pain. And, uh, man, part of that could have been frustration because how fucking disappointing does it got to be to think, uh, as I'm sure they all do, that every season's going to be your season. Then you line up, and on the first race of the first evening, in the first turn of the first heat, uh, you just fuck up your point standings right from the beginning, and, and that's to say nothing of a serious injury, even if it is just something minor. You're sure it's going to be nagging him and threatening to hamper his performance uh, in the coming weeks. And just from a sense of momentum, that is absolutely not what he needed, you know, even if he'd been able to come back and run the LCQ and to get into a main. But another did not start for this guy. Man, he just can't catch a break. Uh, he's got to say his prayers louder, or start saying them to some different god or something, because uh, he just cannot get a roll of the dice that isn't on snake eyes lately. But it's not as if he made some stupid mistake, all right? Because this section, even though it was not in one of the sections uh, we discussed when we were going over the the track layout and composition. It was a really tricky section, and especially in qualifying uh, with the muddier conditions, people were really struggling with it. Towards the end of the section, there was a tabletop and then two single jumps that followed it going into the turn. And some guys were breaking hard on top of the tabletop, dropping down on the far side of it, risking losing momentum in the process. But then what it did is it allowed them to double the final two jumps and so they could land low in the berm on the next turn and, and swing the bike around without going too high, saving some time. On the other hand, what you could do is you could go off the tabletop and uh, you could really gun it and try to land on the far side of the first of those two jumps and you uh, saved speed, but what you sacrificed, of course, was you had to single into the corner. Well... That's exactly what Pierce Brown did, and since it was the whole shot and he had so many guys right on him, he didn't take the time that, uh, well, that he obviously needed to uh, really roll the bike 
over the jump and he tried to scrub. I mean, you got to admire the tenacity because he, he almost Bubba scrubbed it like he was hitting a triple or something. And this was only a, a three foot obstacle. And uh, that's of course why he couldn't get back around. And he ended up with this momentum, not his body weight, you know, his center of gravity way too far over the handlebars, which of course led to the endo. There might've been some front brake and involved there. But uh, while I was surprised to see that it was him who had this accident in this spot, I was not surprised to see that this spot did come in and play some influence in the overall events of the evening. And especially on the whole shot with all those guys packed together, uh, having to slam on the brakes for uh, a single jump at the end of a high-speed rhythm section. You could see how that was setting the riders up for a uh, potentially dangerous situation. But, you know, it's, it's as they say, one man's loss is another man's gain. Uh, and uh, there were a couple people that ended up benefiting from this, uh, one of which wasn't surprising. You know, McAdoo ends up in second after the uh, chaos in the first corner, right behind Enzo Lopes, does not take much time in getting around him, and he rides that thing pretty much straight to the finish. I mean, that's not surprising. I think anybody would take a healthy McAdoo in good form uh, as a solid second to, or a first in any heat that Jet's not in uh, pretty much out of hand. That being so, I don't think we need to dote on him any farther, but I think a uh, proper source of admiration, a nice little uh, golf clap round of applause might be appropriate for the man in second. It was Enzo Lopes. We talked about him in qualifying, how he took pole in Q1, and his form coming into the heat race was every bit as good as it looked earlier in the morning. You know, of course, the conditions had cleaned up a bit, and I was curious to see if he would do as well on the smoother conditions when the other riders were struggling less, and he proved that he was up to the task. Not only did he get a great start, but he looked calm and in control the entire time. You know, he didn't try to chase McAdoo down, which was wise, but he also wasn't losing a ton of time. He wasn't being chased down from behind. He looked cool and, and collected and confident and so it was good to see that sometimes the the qualifying results can be an indication of of what's going to happen in the evening and that's exactly what happened there now the last spot on the podium goes to austin forkner he got there the other factory kawasaki rider but boy did he have a hard time in doing it he did not get a good start at all and then even after that, at a later point in the race, the camera wasn't on them, but they, you saw him driving besides the whoops. He'd clearly been run off the track going into that first set in the corner preceding it. I don't know if someone gave him a rough time or if he uh, just couldn't get settled down into uh, one of those crazy ruts that had formed there. But he ended up dropping from about a 7th to 14th, and he had to uh, traverse 11 positions to get himself onto the podium. So if you were like me and you were hoping the uh, qualifying drama that he had going on, flying into oncoming traffic, uh, casing big jumps nearly every lap, was just going to be a one-off and a coincidence or that his night was going to get 
any easier uh, once he'd settled in a bit. That was not at all what happened. And uh, knowing what happened in the main to him, knowing that conversation's coming, uh, you have to look at the chaos that uh, occurred at every point throughout the evening for him uh, leading up to that final gate drop. And you really have to strain your imagination to pretend that his fate wasn't already written. But, you know, that's life. Uh, sad shit just happens. And all you can do is just try to move on. So let's move on from the 250s. And now let's talk about the big boys heat race. Now, when we line up for the first heat, we are going to see Eli Tomac, but we're not going to see Chase Sexton since they went 1-2. So the uh, premier bout uh, was going to have to wait for the main event, which is great, right? Because it just builds drama, you know? It's kind of the point of uh, having the heat races to uh, build up some momentum to uh, stimulating climax. So with Eli there unchallenged, it wasn't surprising that when he took the whole shot, he just took off and no one else was uh, really remotely running a pace that would have allowed them to track him down uh, regardless how long the race went and uh, certainly not in the time allotted. Um, but what was good to see was that his teammate, Dylan Ferrandis, uh, was back. And we, we know we already talked about the fact he didn't do great last year. We didn't talk about uh, his injury uh, in the 450 outdoor class and how he missed most of the season and comes back just to get railed by Justin Barsha, re-injures himself. They didn't even know if he was going to be able to ride uh, Moto Donations, right? And he came out, and although he put the bike on the ground a couple times uh, at Donations, you know, it was uh, it was basically a mutter, right? Uh, so you can't really blame him for that. He was riding aggressive, and uh, aside from Jet Lawrence on the 450 for the first time, Ferrandis was the fastest guy out there. So you were expecting to see uh, that if he was happy with the bike, that uh, he'd really have a lot of success and be as dominant as he was uh, when he was racing uh, down there in the lights class. Uh, he's pretty vocal this offseason about how he wasn't pleased uh, with the bike at all for Supercross. He thought it was unbalanced and he thought the uh, power was just so insane. You know, and everybody says these star Yamahas are just uh, full throttle. You turn it a little bit and this thing just takes off. It's basically a rocket ship. And uh, he couldn't figure out how to make that work uh, for the subtleties required of Supercross. And uh, apparently this uh, 23YZF is, is fucking great, everybody's saying. And apparently they address both those issues. Apparently it's uh, a lot more balanced. And it, it also uh, has a smoother power delivery. They actually made it a little less fast, but they made it more responsive in regards to the uh, intricate tasks that uh, these riders are trying to accomplish with the throttle. Well, evidently, Ferrandez was happy with all this because he was able to tuck in behind his teammate, ET3, and pretty much uh, just stay on his fender at a comfortable distance uh, all the way to the finish. No one was going to step up and uh, challenge him, and he looked like he was in good form while he was doing it. Now, on the other monster team, and uh, Monster Energy Kawasaki, and talking about the final guy that got on the box besides these two, we've got Andrew Sansarilla. 
And it was great to see him because, uh, you know, we all know the troubles he's had. We know he took off the whole outdoor season uh, to have surgery. And he'd been struggling uh, getting arm pump and not being able to go the duration of the motos uh, outside and even suffering inside to some degree before that, even with the shorter time and the lesser demands. And uh, we were all looking forward to seeing him back. And we were hoping uh, that his time, you know, away from the track would not uh, mitigate his ability to jump right in and uh, get back into the thick of it. And, you know, during media day and the, in the pre-race interviews and whatnot, he made it clear that he was uh, not looking to go out there and win specifically. That was not his primary task. And it's not very often that you hear uh, professional racers readily admit that, even though it may well be true, and there are times when it should be true, where it's a responsible tactic. But he was clear that he just wanted to put some laps in and uh, get his feet wet again, uh, racing at this level. You know, the practice track is one thing. Uh, but when there's 20 guys pushing each other like they do at the main event, it's, it's just simply different. And with the chaos that A1 has, I think it was wise of him uh, not to push it in the main event. He'd go out and take ninth place in that, which I think is a respectable finish. And considering he did it safely was exactly what he himself uh, said he sent out to accomplish. I, I simply mention that now because there's so much action in, in the 450 main. We probably won't get a whole lot of a chance uh, to talk about him when we get there. But it was great to see him up there. And in the post-race interview, he seemed like he was absolutely stoked to be back. And you could tell that this is a dude uh, that despite the fact that it's been his whole life, is really finding a way to fucking appreciate, you know, the life he has and, uh, or at least has rediscovered that passion. You can understand how they lose it with all the pressure that they're under. And we see a lot of these guys when they take a break, not only do they heal, you know, physically, but they sort of return with a mindset that's uh, a little more positive and a little more optimistic, uh, you know, about uh, the realm of uh, supercross racing and everything that goes on, uh, all the pressures inflicted upon them, uh, even when they're not on the track. Now, standing with a slightly different stance than AC is Aaron Plessinger, who made it clear that he does want to win races this season. And, uh, you know, he has not been able to have the results he wanted, not, not even making the podium very often for that matter. And he made it clear he expects to be up there. Um, and he was just off the box in this first heat here. He was uh, just behind Adam Santorillo. And uh, he did it in really dramatic fashion. He started this thing uh, settling in around seventh place. And uh, he ended up making a last lap pass on Jason Anderson uh, to get that fourth place finish. He tried to line him up in one corner, got it. Anderson got him immediately, got him right back. And then Aaron Plessinger sat on his tail, waited for the opportune moment. And uh, in, in the last turn before the finish line, you know, he makes a uh, photo-worthy pass and ends up taking that fourth place away from Jason Anderson. And it was great to see uh, AP setting a precedent early about what he wants to do this season. And I think he made it clear, if you remember, you know, all the way back in, in qualifying session one, he came out off the gate first. He treated it like uh, it was a race start. 
And he not only tried to set a fast lap time, but he tried to lead for several minutes, uh, you know, until he decided to dial it back a bit. And I think he was making a statement, not really to the other guys, because I don't think he's really that type of guy. I don't think he really worries about what's going on in other people's heads. You know, he's too chill, man. But I think he wanted to make a statement to himself that he wants to come out this year and and, uh, really do what he believes he has the potential to do uh, when the lights go on and to do it on a regular basis. Now, the guy that he passed in that last turn, Jason Anderson, uh, I thought he looked all right. I mean, Jason Anderson always looks all right, but it's not like he had uh, a terrible start and, uh, you know, gained 10 positions or anything like that. We know he has a knack for that. He got a decent start and uh, didn't do a whole lot to advance through the pack. You know, he looked kind of like he was just trying to, just trying to get it there. And I understand it's just a heat, a a, a gate's a a gate, uh, despite position, you know, uh, it's good enough just to get into the main event. But, uh, you know, if you remember last year, uh, he was really amped up in the first part of the season and, uh, he was really amped up outdoors despite all the bad starts he got. Aside from Eli and Chase, he was a, a respectable third. He was uh, a head or at least some shoulders above the rest of the pack. And the only reason you didn't see that was because he had horrible start after horrible start and uh, had to regain sometimes 20 positions uh, just to get a respectable finish. And I didn't think he seemed to have that sort of intensity in the heat race, at least. And I was a little surprised that he didn't, uh, or at least I would have been surprised if I was certain he was healthy. But like I said, that qualifying crash, uh, I think it just would have had to do something to him, man. I mean, it was really fucking gnarly. Just in case you weren't already tired of hearing me say that yet. Now, as for the rest of the pack in this first heat, uh, Joey Savacci, uh, El Hombre's teammate, did uh, pretty good with a respectable sixth. Uh, but who really impressed me uh, the most and surprised me as much out of anyone, really, was Colt Nichols, who looked really impressive, uh, got a great start, and ended up uh, taking the flag in, in seventh position. Now, we know he's great at Supercross, right? I think... Uh, I think he would have got Craig even if Craig didn't get hurt when he did get his 250 West Championship. He was just the fastest guy on the small bikes there uh, if we're excluding Jet from the conversation. And we didn't get to see them race very often uh, because of the different coasts. You know, Jet was going to go West and then he got hurt. So he had to go East instead and dominated that. Uh, but, you know, the obvious reason it's surprising that Colt's uh, up here and doing so well is because uh, he is on the new team. He ended up getting Kenny's old bike, essentially, or fitting into his slot at the very least. Uh, and so not only is he a rookie in the class, not only is he riding against uh, the best riders in the world for the very first time, but he's on a new bike doing it. And you'd think uh, they could only get, uh, you know, the suspension, things like that so close. Uh, during the offseason. you got to be on a track as gnarly as Anaheim one. Well, maybe not as gnarly as this Anaheim one, but because uh, it was uh, even crazier than is typical. But um, it takes time to dial it in. And uh, it didn't take him much time, it appeared, uh, given his heat race performance, or uh, if it did, then 
he just managed to uh, ride the bike anyways, even if it was really scary, man, because he was blitzing the whoops. He looked smooth over everything. And uh, this carried on into the main event. He's another guy. I don't you know if we'll get a chance to talk about him then. But he came across the line in sixth place when everything was said and done after two laps and 20 minutes, improving even on his heat event result as, as unexplicable as that is. And, uh, you know, setting himself in a nice little sandwich between uh, Jason Anderson in seventh and Ken Roxon in fifth. You know, this is elite company. He beat other factory riders that have been doing this for a long time, some of whom were relatively healthy for Supercross riders and had been actively in the sport, uh, such as Justin Barsha. You know, he's won Anaheim one three times. And obviously he had some trouble, but he goes 11th, you know, and, and Colt beat him by five positions, which is really impressive for a rookie who's uh, working on new equipment. Now, before we move on and talk about the second heat race, I just want to make uh, one final statement. And I guess really as opposed to being a statement, it's really more of a question, which was that I noticed uh, Kyle Chisholm, who switched over to the Hep Suzuki for this season, was running around in 10th, just outside of qualifying position on the very last lap. Then the leaderboard showed him drop to 16, and then he dropped all the way down to uh, what they called plus four laps on the uh, leaderboard on, on Racer X. And so I can only assume it wasn't on camera because uh, the last lap pass was occurring of Aaron Plessinger on Jason Anderson. But uh, he must have crashed. He must have gone, gone down, whether someone did it to him or he did it... Uh, of his own volition, uh, of his own error at least, um, or barring that, he must have had some sort of uh, catastrophic bike failure. Um, I assume it's an injury because they had him listed as lining up for the LCQ, uh, but he did not show up to the gate and nothing was heard from him after that. So I'm assuming, unfortunately, something happened involving a crash and I would uh, really like to see a story come out uh, so I can find out what happened with that. With that, I think it's about time to move on and discuss the uh, second 450 heat event. And this one, in some ways, was a mirror image of the heat event which preceded it. Chase Sexton came out and did exactly what Eli Tomac did to his opponents. He beat them across the whole shot line. He was first into the first corner, and he took off, and he didn't look back. And he did all that with authority. Chase Sexton did the same exact thing. He was out there in his uh, Michael Jordan jersey, his Alpine Stars jersey, um, just looking uh, every bit like the man himself. You could picture him with his tongue sticking through his lips like he was taking a free throw. Uh, he wasn't going to make any mistake. And if you did try to come up on his fender, you could be assured that he would, in fact, take that personally. Because he did so well, there's really not much to talk with about him here aside from that, because I don't think anyone's surprised uh, that he came up and uh, did what he did in qualifying uh, after his outdoor season. I don't think really anybody expected for him to come in here and go P8. 
Now, some people might have expected him to not have a great main event because uh, he certainly is prone to mistakes, especially when he's really pushing it. Not all the time, but he does cross a line uh, where that bike is uh, going to end up with the, the handlebars dug into the dirt, okay? It's uh, just a, a problem he's struggled with with a long time, and he's a young guy, so you have no doubt that he'll figure it out. So you could have expected that in the main, but you, you couldn't have expected for him to have to push so hard in a heat event uh, that he would have to jeopardize a podium finish uh, in any way or shape. So with nothing more to be said about him, I suppose we can just move on and talk about the story that uh, anyone will love who has ever felt uh, any sort of romantic feelings in their life. Okay, whether those were towards a person, uh, an inanimate object, but especially if those feelings of romance were felt towards the sport of, of motorcycle racing. All right, and that is uh, the life and times of the 94 of Kenny Roxon. Okay, we all know the drama he had on the offseason. We know that he lost his ride with HRC Honda that he'd had for a, a really long time now, several years. Uh, because he wanted to go and do these overseas races, and they didn't want him to do it. So he was left without a ride in the offseason, and before he started testing out all these different options, it wasn't certain whether he was going to have a ride at all at a, a certain point in time. Well, he found one, as we know, on the Hep Suzuki. You know, he's got those progressive decals in there. They're kicking in some money to uh, accommodate someone... Uh, on the team with the caliber that uh, Kenny Roxon uh, should be held to and uh, deservingly. Uh, but we did have questions about the bike itself. Everybody said once you replace everything on it, but the Kickstarter, it has the potential to win races. And he looked good in qualifying, but we wanted to see how that would translate to an actual uh, evening event. And in the heat race, he certainly didn't disappoint. He goes for second uh, right behind Eli, and he looked really smooth doing it. He didn't look like he was having any problems with his fitness. You know, we know that he has had issues with the Epstein-Barr syndrome. Uh, you might think, you know, well, at the first race, of course he's going to be healthy. It's going to be seven weeks in where his immune system starts to tank on him. But with as hard as these guys practice and... With him, with the added effort of getting to know a, a new bike, of getting back on a Suzuki after such a long time, uh, you'd have to imagine that uh, the effort he's been putting in is pretty much relentless. And he, he looked great. He did uh, everything uh, that you could hope and expect from him. And you got to think if he'd gotten a better jump off the lead, he probably could have gunned it and uh, took a first place in the heat race if that was his prerogative. At the same time, however, there was another individual that uh, barely wanted Ken Roxon to get second, and that was Cooper Webb. He nearly made the pass on Kenny in the very last turn on the very last lap, and uh, they crossed the uh, finishing jump with only uh, Kenny having about a tire's length on him. 
And Cooper made it abundantly clear that he wasn't just here to make it into the main. He made it clear that this year he wants to dominate uh, every time he's on the track uh, with this effort, uh, regardless of whether it's, uh, you know, going for the big win or whether it's just a heat race. And I think that was great. And it was great to see the enthusiasm and the drive from him. And it's not as if he had no other uh, contenders in this heat race to deal with that he could just coast around until the last instant and uh, try to make a move on rocks. And he had to battle with two other guys that were really in good form the whole night and especially going into this thing. And that's uh, Malcolm Stewart and uh, Marvin Muscan. They were battling each other for a while and then Cooper had to get involved uh, after the fact to... uh, make the passes on them, and they didn't want to give it to him easy. He had to really cut low in the berms and and, and be really smooth to do it. And, uh, you know, that's what he's known for, and he didn't have a problem even in these conditions. But it it was really an an impressive feat uh, for a heat effort, and I was really excited when this happened to see how that would translate into the main event, and though I don't want to give any spoilers, I was not disappointed. Now, uh, one other guy I want to talk about here real fast before we get into the main events uh, was Justin Barsha. He only went sixth here, and the the reason I say only went sixth, uh, when oftentimes that could be a position uh, that you could, in fact, expect from him in a field as stacked as this, Anaheim 1 is this guy's best race. He comes in in the beginning of the season, and we know he's a guy that runs on adrenaline, right? For better or for worse. And there's uh, no more adrenaline-provoking event than there is uh, the season opener. He's won three times, and he did that the last three consecutive years, 19, 20, and 21. So uh, while the obvious bet was on Eli or Chase, when it came to a winner, I thought Justin Barsha might step up and give us that fourth Anaheim one win. In doing so, uh, matching Kenny Roxon, who as an active writer has the most Anaheim one wins uh, with four under his belt. All right. Well, with all that being said, I I think that pretty much covers it for all the preliminary events. So let's uh, get on to what we've all been waiting for and, and, and talk about the main events. Uh, But before we do that, just because it will very shortly become relevant, I want to talk about just one thing that uh, happened in the 450 LCQ real fast, and that was that uh, Shane McElrath was a uh, notable appearance in that, and uh, he didn't even get around the first turn. He lined up inside, and uh, this was a really tricky start, right, because it was... uh, a split start, and uh, everybody that was having to line up to the left of the split, uh, they just had more distance to traverse, and so they simply weren't going to be the uh, first one to the tough block uh, leading into that uh, whole shot turn. But uh, on the other hand, leaning up on the inside wasn't that great either because the inside disappeared fast. After just a few feet, the tough block started to taper in, and uh, if you weren't the first one out of the blocks, uh, you were running out of real estate, and you were having to either slam on the brakes or uh, bang into the riders to your right 
uh, not to be run right off the track. The reason I mention that is because that's exactly what happened to Shane McElrath. He lined up inside, he was on the factory bike, and he figured he could blow right past these guys to be the first one to the first turn, uh, thus nullifying his chance of getting cut off. Well, he got a pretty good start, but uh, he wasn't clearly in the lead. And what happened was uh, exactly that. He got cut off by the rider to the right of him. And when he slammed on the brakes, uh, you know, we know they were struggling with the, the rain that fell the previous night all evening. And they did a pretty good job of cleaning up the track itself as best as they could do. But on this first turn, deep on the inside where people weren't riding, uh, typically the lanes that developed during the course of the race, but it was so far inside and it was just a mud pit. And when he had to slam on his brakes, that uh, front tire dug in and uh, it turned sideways on him and he went right over the fucking bars. And, and that was the end of his night uh, he did manage to shake it off eventually. I think the reason he didn't finish is simply because he knew he didn't have enough time to do it. But uh, I bring this up not only because it was a bummer for him and because it might be surprising to some of you to see him in the LCQ in the first place, but because the uh, exact, exact events that led to his demise based on that gate choice and the way the start was set up uh, caused... Uh, had huge ramifications uh, for a particular rider uh, right off the start in the 250 main. And so without further ado, let's go ahead and uh, jump into talking about that. Now, when it comes to who had the best chances of winning uh, based on what we knew coming in to the main event, I think it's clear that uh, we're going to pick Jet as well as the two heat winners, Cameron McAdoo, and R.J. Hampshire, uh, as well as Austin Forkner, uh, to say clearly that uh, it's pretty much going to be three of those four guys that end up standing on the podium when all is said and done. Uh, all that might be left to determine is the order and which one's the odd man out. And we knew going into this furthermore that uh, aside from the start uh, perhaps playing such a big role simply because of how crazy it was, and how treacherous, uh, it was also going to uh, have huge ramifications on the outcome uh, simply based on the way that the track had deteriorated, right? It basically became a, a slot car track, as uh, I've heard some of the analysts call it sometimes, which is where not only does the track get rutted deeply, we've talked endlessly about those muddy turns, but uh, the ruts as the race developed, were quickly becoming unusable, even within the course of a lap. So these guys were having to change lines every time they came around the track. And uh, by the middle of the race, or maybe not even that far in, uh, everything had deteriorated to the point that there was only one line left. So uh, you had to believe people were going to settle into the places they got uh, established right after the first couple of laps. And uh, despite efforts to pass, uh, these attempts were going to be hampered by the fact that you had to follow the guy in front of you and you didn't have a great opportunity to dash around him uh, in any of the turns, basically. Um, so you're going to have to rely on making your passes in the rhythm sections. And on the smaller bikes where maintaining momentum through the turns is such a huge issue, 
that makes it even harder to uh, switch lanes at the last minute and jump around a guy uh, just because he makes a tiny slip. So you are really going to have to settle in and wait for the guy in front of you uh, to really make a big error uh, so that you could really get past him. And that did happen on one occasion uh, with Hampshire and McAdoo. And uh, we're going to talk about that. Uh, but before we do, we got to talk about how things uh, originated right from the start. And of course, when we do that, we're talking about the tragedy uh, that we've already mentioned that befell poor Austin Forkner. We teased it. I think it was the most tragic event of the night, uh, even more so than Pierce Brown, because it did happen in the main event and because uh, Forkner is just expected or was expected till his slate of injuries to be such a, a big up-and-comer in the sport and who I personally pegged to be the one guy who could challenge Jet. Uh, and uh, you saw him crash, and it was a horrible crash, right? I mean, he really crashed twice because not only did he go flying over the bars and, and, and fly a distance that appeared on camera uh, to be nearly the length of a football field, but uh, after he somersaulted and landed the first time, his back slammed so fucking hard into the dirt that his body sort of reflexively reacted by... Uh, throwing him into a scorpion condition. He nearly bent his uh, legs around and put his heels uh, on the top of the head, and he did it all midair because the first impact had uh, so much momentum and it, so much force that he bounced off the ground like a basketball. And uh, it was good to see that he was even able to get himself onto the cart to be hauled off, and you couldn't tell how much of his response was because of severe pain and how much was just frustration because he thought he'd made the changes he needed to make coming into this season. Uh, and perhaps he did make those changes just to have some unfortunate circumstances uh, dash his hopes and dreams a another time in a, a repetition of, of patterns and themes that I'm sure to him is just becoming, uh, at this point, both redundant and monotonous and something he desperately wishes to escape from. But uh, while it was unfortunate, and you certainly can't blame the guy for what happened, uh, there were certain events on the start uh, initiated by him and by others that uh, really led to that crash. And uh, I think we should d discuss them again just because it was perhaps such an important moment for the series and also because it was just so graphic to see him go flying like that. Now, the, the first thing we should probably discuss is uh, the order that the main players lined up at the gates. And because there was only that sort of middle inside section tucked just to the right of the split, uh, where there was really an ideal situation to set up, you had uh, all our main contenders packed in right next to each other. You had uh, Austin Forkner sandwiched between McAdoo and RJ Hampshire, with McAdoo to the left, and R.J. Hampshire to the right of him, you know, closer to where that uh, inside lane narrows up uh, so awfully fast. Now, off the gate, they all three got off at, at exactly the same time. They all had great starts. They were all great with the clutch and getting the power to the ground. Uh, but what happened 
is Forkner did eventually fall about a half a bike length between both RJ and McAdoo, who were running pretty much uh, hand in hand. And the fact that he fell behind that little bit forced him to make a decision that ultimately resulted in his crash. And I believe, and I'm not sure, but it looked on television like the way that he ended up slipping behind them that was that uh, coming off the gate in second, I assume they start in, he starts in second, they all uh, accomplished what they set out to do uh, pretty much perfectly. But when it came to that shift to third, it seemed like Hampshire and McAdoo were a little quicker with it. And uh, just a split second was lost by Forkner during that upshift that had some tragic consequences. But the reason those consequences happened was because R.J. Hampshire uh, twisted the throttle a little too much uh, once he'd uh, gotten maybe 50 feet out of the gate, and his front wheel ended up uh, really coming up. He was in a wheelie, and uh, you know he didn't want to drop it down and double clutch and lose time, so he just tried to ride it out. Well, by mere happenstance, while he had his front tire up in the air, Enzo Lopes got pushed from all those guys coming right because the inside line collapsed and uh, he banged in to RJ Hampshire a little bit. Now, because Hampshire didn't have both wheels on the ground, even though it wasn't a lot of contact, he ended up swerving right uh, to avoid being thrown off balance. Now, who was to his right that he swerved into? Uh, of course, it was uh, none other than Austin Forkner. Now, normally, if they'd been bar to bar, uh, I think he just would have leaned into RJ, and while he might have lost a, a fraction of time, he wouldn't have ended up going flying like that. But because he was a little bit behind, he realized that RJ's back end was going to take out his front end. So he quickly swerved to the right, making contact with McAdoo's back tire. And when he did that and he saw it was happening, he put on the front brake. Um, and much like uh, Shane McElrath, which is why we discussed it, that front tire ended up uh, getting a little sideways. Uh, but he was going even faster than McElrath. And, uh, well, the uh, broadcast and the visual feed explains everything that happened after that. But uh, it really just is... A, a tremendous example of how, you know, this sport is measured in split seconds. You know, not only can you lose a place or two, but uh, especially on the start. Uh, and when you're in these uh, jam-packed situations like a bunch of sardines towards the beginning of the race, uh, that split second, a tiny error, losing half a bike length can literally result in, in catastrophe. And uh, I just, I don't want to say enjoyed because I don't enjoy anybody getting hurt, but breaking down this start to analyze it and realizing it was just this domino effect of all these riders having these uh, little errors happen that accumulated into uh, tragedy for just one person. Uh, it was really unique to see it spelled out like that in such uh, easily traceable circumstances. Now, for all the other domino pieces uh, involved in that melee, all the main riders sandwiched together, uh, there was one guy who managed to uh, stay away from the melee and uh, emerge from the uh, mayhem uh, with an advantage. 
on his side. And that was Jet Lawrence, of course. He was lined up to the left of McAdoo. And uh, McAdoo did a good job by not being thrown off by Forkner. Uh, but the fact that they did collide let Jet get that one extra step. And uh, McAdoo settled in. Uh, you know, he was next to him after the first turn. But by the end of the first rhythm section and that uh, big left turn, uh, Jet had established himself as the front runner. And uh, this is basically how the race would proceed uh, basically for the next nine minutes or uh, 10 or 11 laps, whichever you prefer, which is Jet in the lead and uh, Cameron McAdoo sitting about uh, three to three and a half seconds behind him. Now, for the other heat winner, R.J. Hampshire, uh, because he had that wheelie and because he collided with Forkner, he had a, a slightly harder time coming off the line, and he was buried at, at about ninth coming out of that second left-hand turn. Uh, he did not let that uh, dash his hopes of a podium, however. He uh, took no time in dispatching uh, eighth place through, through fourth, and uh, before the 12-minute mark of the race uh, had gone by, he had uh, chased down Max Volen for that third spot, for the final podium spot, and uh, he just made an easy pass on him over uh, a triple uh, that he had uh, set up several turns beforehand. And Volen didn't fight him because he didn't have the pace. It was clear who the top three runners were going to be for that night and everybody else just kind of had to watch them perform from a pretty good distance behind. Well, once RJ found himself in this third place position, uh, it wouldn't be surprising to see the old RJ uh, just absolutely gun it and try to catch McAdoo, seeing an opportunity uh, to go first or second uh, in an Anaheim one, which is something he hasn't come close to accomplishing. Uh, but we know he's prone to crashing, and he knows he's prone to crashing. So he did something that was absolutely brilliant, and he just uh, settled in and rode the laps. And for the next nine minutes or so, all the way down until the six-minute mark, uh, he just rode at a consistent pace. And just as McAdoo was about three and a half seconds behind Lawrence, Hampshire ran pretty consistently around the three-second mark behind McAdoo. And he just let the race come to him, and he, you know, uh, evolved with the track as it changed. And uh, that really ended up paying dividends for him. Uh, with his patience, he looked smooth, he looked upright, he didn't look anywhere close to a crash. And uh, by that six-minute mark, he had started to cut that gap from three seconds to about a second and a half. Now, at this point, uh, Jet had started to pull away, uh, increasing his lead to about five seconds. Uh, and I think McAdoo was fine with that. I think he'd uh, kind of settled in and accepted that uh, he was leaving in second in Anaheim. So when he heard the crowd cheering and RJ catching up to him, he did get on the gas. And you could tell he got in the gas because he closed that gap between himself and Lawrence back down to about three and a half. But RJ was only a second and a half behind him, 
And uh, I think the added pressure of trying to turn up the pace uh, with the conditions uh, caused McAdoo to make a big mistake that allowed Hampshire to make the pass. And after that, he never really looked back. And it was a section that uh, we've seen already have a huge impact with the discussions we've had so far. We talked about how it would. And in the 450 main, we're going to talk about a, a huge slam that Malcolm Stewart had uh, in this same exact spot. And what it was is it was in that first rhythm section after the whoops, you know, where you double onto the tabletop, double off. And then there's that big triple with the big middle hump that sets you up for that last quad. This is exactly where Jason Anderson crashed in practice. He cased the triple because he couldn't get over it. And that's exactly what McAdoo did, perhaps because of the, the pressure put on by RJ Hampshire. Because up to that point, McAdoo was running uh, pretty smooth and buttery. But he cases it, and he cases it bad, but uh, it was a miracle he was able to keep it up. But uh, like we said, that was enough for RJ to get into second, and uh, that's exactly where he'd come across the line. So, uh, you know, for the last four minutes plus two of the race or whatever, I think all three riders were resigned to the places they were getting. Jet let off the pace a little bit. McAdoo uh, did not try to make a push on Amchire, or if he did try early, he realized he wasn't going to get him, and he decided to settle for making the podium. But what's remarkable is that RJ Hampshire, too, was perfectly willing to set in, just as we mentioned just a minute ago about how he might be tempted to really go uh, for that top spot. I think he absolutely had the pace tonight. And I think if he was willing to push himself a little harder, uh, if not catching Jet, he could have at least closed the gap to a couple seconds uh, to make the argument to himself and to everyone that uh, Jet Lawrence was not the fastest rider that night. Uh, he just happened to have a better start and to uh, be the uh, recipient of the good fortune of not having to run through the pack like RJ did uh, during uh, the first few minutes of the main event. Now, the reason I'm harping on Hampshire's uh, unwillingness to push it or prudence in not pushing it so much is because, you know, I, I watched the... Uh, post-race interview he did on the podium there with Will Christian. And uh, I uh, also watched the uh, post-race press conference. And he said uh, a couple of things. He made some strong statements uh, that really uh, echoed the sentiment that his choices showed uh, that were clearly deliberate in retrospect, given what he said uh, when he was making them on track. In the uh, post-race interview, he said, and he said it with a big smile on his face, he said, this was the smartest race I've ever raced. And he was just about as pleased with a, a second place as you could ever expect anyone who uh, considers himself a champion uh, to be uh, comfortable in accepting that second place uh, with any sincere enthusiasm. And he was acknowledging himself and telling everyone that uh, he'd finally found a way uh, to clean up his temptation, to, to really push things and uh, to let his ego force him to uh, try to be on top of the box, uh, no matter the consequences. 
Now, when it comes to the uh, press conference they did afterwards, one of the reporters got up and uh, they asked him uh, something along the lines of, you know, Jet's a a three-time champion. You're probably tired of hearing him hyped up, but uh, he gets hyped up nonetheless. And I'm curious uh, to you, as someone who's not discussed as much, if you consider the accolades people keep pouring on Jet uh, to be uh, some sort of an ammunition that uh, fuels your own success. And uh, RJ was very frank. I love how honest the kid is. I think he's the most uh, honest interviewer in uh, all of motocross, perhaps. And he said, look, you can't question the accomplishments of Jet. Three-time winner, that's insane. He's clearly a talent that's going to go on to have immense success. And he said, for me, not only was this the first time I got in the box in Anaheim one, but this is the first time I've been in a position to even see the guys that are in the front of the pack. And he said, I have no interest in uh, trying to climb every rung in the ladder and uh, get to where Jed is right now. I'm trying to improve on what I have done and uh, I'm just going to take it step by step. And for him to have any long-term success, I think this approach is not only appropriate, but absolutely necessary. And it's, it's great to see that he knows that, you know, when it comes to Hampshire, he's not like some people where you've got to question if he has the top speed, he always has it at moments. And sometimes he has his at moments and then crashes and then gets back up even faster than he was, uh, before he got himself all, all muddy. Right. So it's just about eliminating mistakes with him, uh, kind of to a greater degree than this other kid, but, uh, kind of like Chase Sexton and the fact that Sexton's struggling with it shows that it's not only up and comers that have to deal with it, but that, uh, you know, some riders, especially where the pace is guaranteed, uh, consistency is where they need to look to improve, uh, when the big picture and long-term success is the, uh, discussion you're wanting to have. Uh, So I don't, I don't want to pump his tires any more than I already have, you know, he's just uh, one rider, but uh, I think especially with uh, Forkner out, uh, it's really a relief to see someone that uh, might be able to come up and uh, challenge Jet Lawrence and give us some interesting uh, races uh, deeper down in the series. Uh, I'm still not willing to say anybody but Jet is going to take the championship, uh, but that's exactly the reason you want to see at least one person come up and manage to make it interesting. And I know that McAdoo was third place here, uh, but I think the only reason he looked better than Hampshire for any period of time was because he got off the line in second, despite all the chaos. I think if he gets the ninth plate start that Hampshire gets, McAdoo might have barely been on the box, or if he was, he would have been a a, a far distance off uh, the two top runners in Lawrence and Hampshire, at least a lot farther than he was. And I think if you look at the lap times for these three uh, main players here, as the race went on, you can see that uh, for once the statistics kind of uh, verify what I'm talking about. 
Now, some interesting things to note here are that uh, Jet Lawrence was the only rider of the night to ever pass a one-minute lap time. He was the only one sub-60 seconds, and he only did it once, I think around lap five, um, four or five. And uh, that's not to say that uh, he slowed down as the race went on, but everybody, the lap times, especially in the last four laps, uh, dropped uh, by four to five seconds compared to what they were at the top of the night. And that, of course, was because uh, the track had deteriorated so badly. But when you look at the average lap times, uh, you see that uh, while Jet, you know, obviously as the winner, did have the fastest average, uh, he only beat R.J. Hampshire's average lap time by uh, 0.12 seconds just over a tenth of a second, which in a 16-lap race only adds up to uh, a 1.6-second gap if you run that uh, lap every time, you know, which we can imagine for hypothetical purposes. And uh, a second and a half can be, uh, you know, that's uh, the same gap Hampshire was behind McAdoo before he had that bobble in the triple, and it was enough to make a pass. Whereas if you look at McAdoo, who was ahead of everybody else in the field uh, in terms of average lap time considerably. He was over a half second off Hampshire and over 0.6, uh, nearly 0.7 off Jet Lawrence. And so you add that up over 16 laps and, and you're looking at an eight second deficit if uh, everybody, uh, again, hypothetically managed to get off the line at the same time. And that's way too far back to make a pass or to say that it is competitive. So I think if we're looking for a contender for Jet early on and we're making early speculation, it has to be RJ Hampshire. So I suppose the question going into next week, if we do want to set up a little drama, is uh, could Jet have gone and checked out by 18, 20 seconds uh, if the track had presented better conditions and if that had been his objective. He was very clear in his post-race interview that, uh, you know, he doesn't even care if he wins every race. He basically said, I don't know if that's accurate, but he said all he cares about are the point standings, and he said that it was one of the gnarliest tracks. Every rider pretty much echoed that sentiment, one of the gnarliest tracks in terms of condition uh, that he'd ever ridden. And so all he wanted to do was get through it and pick up as many points as he could. And if you watched him ride, he wasn't pushing it. You could tell that his statements were accurate. But it begs the question, if RJ had gotten off, uh, had gotten the whole shot, perhaps, or had come up right on his front bumper, would Jet Lawrence have been willing to ride around in second and uh, settle for that position when it came to the official standings? Or would he feel obligated to challenge and? R.J. Hampshire, and would, by extension, uh, being pushed by R.J. either from in front or behind and trying to make a pass, could that extra pressure have led to uh, a mistake on behalf of Jet Lawrence? Now, I know what you're saying, and you're going to say if anybody was to be affected by the pressure, it would be R.J. that would crash. And uh, I do not deny that if we're talking about the old R.J. Hampshire. But something to remember about Jet Lawrence is that uh, earlier on in his career, 
uh, he handled pressure sort of in the same way as RJ Hampshire. He had a lot of crashes. Now, normally he's so fast, he was able to dust himself off and still make it onto the podium or even win in some instances. And uh, furthermore, it may seem that over the course of especially the last outdoor season, he really found a way to eliminate those mistakes from his riding completely. And I'm sure he has worked very hard to accomplish that. But I'm also of the opinion, uh, humble though it may be, that uh, if you look at the outdoor season, uh, part of the reason that uh, he might not have been making mistakes was because there was literally no one that could challenge him. The first year he won the Lucas Oil title, uh, Cooper challenged him hard for a lot of the season until he got hurt. Uh, this last time around, uh, Lawrence had no real competition in the point standings. He simply had no equal out there. Uh, he might have, Joe Shimoda, by the end of the season, if he could have got a good start, might have run close to him because he improved immensely. But uh, as it was, uh, Jet Lawrence was riding these races at 85 90%. And all these guys are so good that they're pretty much never going to crash if they're sticking uh, well below the line of what might be considered their comfort level. So I would not be surprised to see if someone could step up, a big if, but if a Hampshire or a McAdoo could step up and challenge him for the first place consistently with a little bit of luck, uh, I would be interested to see if Jet handles it cool and manages to stay upright and is simply already the champion that he's uh, clearly destined to become, or if he can still succumb to the pressure. And if he's actually out there with someone that's his equal or nearly as equal, does he have to ride in a way that's more aggressive, especially on tracks like this where the conditions are bad? And uh, does that extra effort uh, lead to some of the errors that we've seen from him in the past? Or is he willing to sit back and, and take his lumps and, and take some seconds and thirds and not be able to give uh, his uh, trademark victory speeches on the box if it still means that he gets that second championship at the end of the season. Obviously, you know, I hear myself talking and it sounds like uh, I'm engaging in a whole bunch of what if, but you know, when it seems like the story's already been predetermined, uh, you've got to dig uh, a little deeper into the hypotheticals, I think, uh, if you want to uh, find it interesting, I guess. Um, so that's enough about the main guys. Uh, we've talked that to death. So let's just talk about a, a few other guys here uh, that did uh, good or had noteworthy performances uh, before we move on to the 450 main event. Enzo Lopes, who started in 12th, uh, managed to get a P6. Uh, he's only done one Anaheim one before. He's uh, been on the East for the most part. He did that back in 2019. And uh, he took a 15th in that event. Obviously, he was much younger then. That's before he'd taken fifth place in the standings uh, in the 250 East in two separate years. Uh, but since he's new to the West, uh, I thought it was good to see it, you know, and I, I thought it was nice to see that we could see it coming with running uh, fastest in uh, Q1 and uh, with the uh, second place that he took in his heat race. Uh, it was nice to see those weren't coincidences and that the speed he set up uh, early in the day translated 
to the main event. And I'm excited to see if he continues to improve and maybe even uh, to get on the podium by the end of the season. I think with the fifth places he has in the East, uh, getting on the box a couple of times uh, is a reasonable and desirable objective for him. Now, when you look at fourth and fifth place uh, race finishers here, you got uh, Mitchell Oldenburg and Max Voland. Uh, I could see those guys swapping for this uh, position every week, especially with Fortner out and depending on uh, Enzo Lope's consistency. Um, and I could occasionally see uh, Levi Kitchen coming in to a lesser extent and uh, stealing one of those positions. Now, finally, I want to talk about Husky rider Styles Robinson because uh, there's been a lot of hype about him. Uh, as a youngster coming up, and uh, the hype hasn't really translated into results. I I know he's been dealing with a lot of stuff, and I know that uh, some of the uh, accolades he gets are uh, just because he has a super cool fucking first name, and uh, he certainly can't be slighted for that. Well, he went ninth tonight, and uh, his best finish inside in Supercross is the seventh place if you leave out uh, Daytona results. He's taken second at Daytona twice in two separate years, obviously, in his career. Um, and when you look at last year's outdoor season for him, uh, he was very good. He got a third in Red Bud, I believe it was. Uh, he had a couple of sixth. And so he's proving himself to be great uh, in the uh, rugged outdoor conditions. But uh, for him, I think if he really wants to, if he can manage to stay healthy, if he really wants to prove himself to be a contender uh, indoors as well as outdoors, he's going to have to find a way to get a couple top fives uh, of the nine rounds that he lines up for uh, in this 2023 uh, Supercross season, you know, in the 250 West. And uh, I think that he can do that. And I think if he does it once, uh, he might find it much easier to replicate that result uh, in perpetuity in future events. I think at this point, I want to stop talking 250s and uh, get to the main, main event of the night, if you will. And uh, I'll try not to do too much with the narrative because there's so much that happens in this fucking race that there's uh, just no way uh, we could talk about each guy's uh, circumstances uh, going into this thing uh, without just dragging this on uh, far beyond uh, either one of us really wants to be here. Uh, so going into this, we've got two main contenders, right? We've uh, established it's Eli Tomac and Chase Sexton. Both heat winners had no problem doing it. But then a whole bunch of guys that uh, were really curious to get an early look and see how things might shape up for them going on, going into this season. Uh, Adam Santorillo, Cooper Webb, Dylan Ferrandis, Jason Anderson, uh, fan favorite Malcolm Stewart, and then, of course, Justin Barsha, who we already talked about, is trying to make it four in a row. And uh, it seemed like any one of these guys had a chance to be in that third spot, if not higher. Um, 
in the press conference after the race, I think it was Cooper Webb that said it, I'm not sure, but uh, he said they didn't groom the track uh, as much as he thought they would, considering how gnarly it was. I, I guess they use gnarly in a general way. I guess it was uh, bad in this case. Um, but, you know, regarding the conditions, so he was hoping they'd clean it up more, and I guess uh, all of the racers were. So, uh, you know, we're going to get more of what we got in the 250 main, uh, or so you'd think, which was difficulty passing, uh, given how quickly the uh, lanes were going away on account of the ruts. And yet, uh, we got more passing in this race than I think uh, we would have any right to ask for humbly when we got on our knees and prayed to the motorcycle gods for a good race on Saturday morning. Now, when it comes to the starting positions, when it comes to gate picks, in the split lane, you know, on the inside, the outer part of that inside lane, just like the 250s and really where it had been all night, was where uh, the majority of the good guys uh, wanted to start their main. You had uh, Chase right there nestled between Eli and Kenny. You had Cooper Webb banging bars with Eli. You had Mookie on the outside of him. And uh, you had Ferrandis and AC tucked uh, a little farther inside, a little too close to where that uh, inside lane drops away so quickly, uh, along with Jason Anderson. And so the cameras were all focused on these guys going into the start, and then the gate drops, you know, and... Uh, Justin Barsha comes flying out from the outside lane and just surpasses everybody except for one guy who I don't think anybody had picked to take the cold whole shot Saturday evening, which was Colt Nichols. He had an even wider starting position than Justin Barsha, and he came flying by Justin Barsha's right elbow. And because he was on such a wide angle, he didn't even have to break for that first left-hand turn into the rhythm section. And um, he got one of the best starts uh, that uh, I have ever seen from the outside. Now, he didn't hold on to it very long. Barsha got past him, and uh, he dropped to eighth pretty quickly, uh, but ended up taking sixth overall because of a couple mistakes made uh, by people who we'll discuss momentarily. Uh, but uh, despite all the uh, mainstays, all the guys we expected to come up front, uh, most of which you did, there was a guy whose start was uh, the craziest out of uh, everyone lined up that day. And uh, because he didn't come out in front and because he didn't crash, I don't think maybe everyone saw it. But uh, Adam Sansarillo had one of the craziest starts that you really could have imagined and especially given the uh, separate crash incidences we'd seen with Austin Forkner and Shane McElrath, uh, kind of mere crashes in different places that occurred uh, earlier on in the night. Well, Adam Sansarillo struggled just like everyone else with the result of that uh, inside lane fading away so quickly in that Jason Anderson was pushed outside and he bangs into Adam Sansarillo. He, in turn puts his right wheel into Aaron Plessinger's back wheel, just like Austin Forkner put his back wheel into the front wheel of uh, Cameron McAdoo, right? And uh, nearly the same thing happens. The front end starts to wash out, 
and it starts to wobble on him back and forth. And by the third wobble, his front wheel was nearly completely sideways. His weight got forward on the bike, and it looked like he was going to end up just like his teammate in the 250s had before him. And yet what he did that was so genius and something that was different than what I think McElrath and, and Forkner did uh, was that he refused to put on the front brake. You know, that's the intuitive thing to do. And yet he decided not to do that. And furthermore, uh, he kept the throttle pin so that he kept momentum uh, to keep the uh, center of gravity balanced and to keep the bike upright. And I think that's what saved him. And even though if that hadn't happened, he probably could have uh, maybe had a top three start and had a completely different look uh, to his race, one that he probably would have liked. Uh, overall, uh, he was still able to take a ninth on the evening. And since he said he just wanted to come in and do the laps to recover from that and get through everything unscathed, uh, I think that's probably a good day for him. And I think he'd probably echo that sentiment. Now, early on, Justin Barsha is trying to run away with this thing, and he's got Eli um, a couple seconds behind him trying to dispatch of Kenny Roxon. Uh, Roxon makes the pass on Eli early. Uh, it gets Eli riled up a little bit. He gets Roxon right back, and then he sets his sights on Barsha, and uh, once he gets himself established, it doesn't take him long to catch him. But, uh, you know, Justin Barsha has a, a reputation, and... Uh, Eli Tomac wanted to be uh, pretty conservative on account of it. Didn't want to see his night end like that. So uh, he just rode on his rear fender there and waited for a chance. And Justin Barsha gave it to him coming over that tunnel jump. Uh, he lost traction at the bottom, couldn't find a rut, and uh, had to roll the whole thing. Well, meanwhile, Eli sends it. But Justin recovers with Stewart and Roxon battling right behind. They go over the second whoop section. They make that ride into this rhythm section that was a nightmare for multiple riders throughout the entire evening. It's infamous at this point. And just like everyone else in this section uh, who came up on the wrong side of uh, good luck tonight, Justin Barshik cases this triple that sets you up for the quad. And... Uh, he cases it hard, so he's not able to get on the brakes, and he goes careening off the next tabletop, and he flies right off the track. He goes over the bars. Uh, it was lucky that he wasn't injured. He's able to jump right back on. I, I think that guy's made out of rubber because he can take a gnarly crash on any night, and he always seems to spring right back up. But uh, while he was able to salvage his body, he wasn't able to salvage the race, and uh, he ends up going... P11 for the evening, uh, ruining his opportunity to repeat A1 for a fourth time straight. Meanwhile, this sets Malcolm Stewart up to begin his charge uh, to what would eventually result in him leading for quite a period of time. And the fans were going crazy. They were on their fucking feet uh, the second uh, he became the pole guy, you know, people really love this dude. And uh, I'm starting to be converted to the case as well. Uh, but to get there, though, it, it wasn't that easy. He had to do some work on, on Kenny Roxon. And uh, because they were strong in different parts of the track, it took a bit of work. He'd start to reel him in in the whoops, you know, Malcolm Stewart's a whoops specialist. 
but Kenny would pull away in some of the more technical turns and sections later on in the track. But eventually, Kenny messes up in a rhythm section, as we saw everyone do all night long. Stuart chases him down. They go side by side through that uh, four by three, those four triples in a row. And uh, it looked great on fucking television. I, I wish that I could have been there in person. Uh, but through this section, Malcolm sets him up to make the pass a couple turns later. And he knew he really had to get him because he was feeling like he could get to the front and he was wasting time battling with Kenny. And Kenny made it clear that he was not going to pull aside and uh, give Malcolm Stewart the position. He makes a pass inside of Roxon in one of the later rhythm sections. And he comes down landing uh, for the inside of the turn. Meanwhile, Roxon is inches behind him, and as he's coming down, he actually bangs his front tire. He scrapes it against Malcolm Stewart's rear bumper. It was literally as close as it gets on a clean pass. But it didn't slow Malcolm down, certainly, and uh, Kenny didn't suffer from it e either. And uh, Malcolm just got on the gas. He knew uh, Eli was checking out, and he certainly wanted to prevent that from happening. He knew it was his evening. He wasn't one of these guys just coming in here to do the laps, you know, which I think is awfully respectable. And uh, his tenacity and uh, aggressiveness pays off because this is that, that famous spot, well, famous on, on some accounts, at least on a relative scale, where Eli goes down on the tunnel jump. You know, he just washed out on the top and uh, he really, you might not have been able to tell on first glance because of the perspective of the camera, but uh, he really came within inches of being mowed down by a couple dudes. Kenny Roxon almost tagged him going over because you couldn't see that Eli was up there from the ground. And uh, Stewart almost got him in the head with his back tire just a moment later. But uh, this was a perhaps, I would say, uncharacteristic mistake by Eli Tomac, who I had pretty much decided was going to check out and be heard from no more, despite Malcolm Stewart's efforts. Uh, he gets himself dusted off pretty quickly and tucks in behind Anderson in sixth with uh, Cooper Webb right behind him. And now Mookie has the lead, and it seems like he's going to lead the whole thing. And perhaps the reason it seems like this is because even though Sexton got a pretty good start while everyone else was battling with Kenny on their way up to the front of the pack, battling with each other, he just kind of sat behind a little bit and settled in and, and watched things unfold. He was just surveying the landscape from about a second and a half behind. And yet he found himself in a position where he was not far off the leader with still a whole lot of time left. Meanwhile, while these two are going 1-2, Jason Anderson, who's made it to fourth by this point, uh, jumps too far out of the final obstacle of a rhythm section, uh, lands in the turn, has to slam on the brakes, and the front end washes out on him, and he ends up going seventh. Now, earlier and throughout this show, I said that he must have been dealing with some sort of injury. And uh, honestly, I, I think I was wrong. I'm going to contradict what I myself said. 
because by the main event, if he was hurting, I don't think he showed it. I think he got a start that, while not great, was better than the luck he had in the outdoor season, was slowed down a bit by crashing into Adam Santorillo, but settled in, was riding some good laps, and uh, maybe could have made a pass late if he hadn't put it down. Uh, but that was the end of his forward momentum for the most part. And he ended up going seventh. Well, Chase Sexton up in front with Malcolm Stewart. The 23 eventually chases the 27 down. Malcolm Stewart makes a mistake where else but in that first rhythm section after the tunnel jump on the triple as well, not able to hit it. Chase Sexton catches him, and he puts him off the track in the big in the big left hand turn. It's really exciting, and it while it wasn't dirty by any means, it was a little aggressive by what we've sometimes seen from Chase Sexton, and it was really aggressive considering that uh, Malcolm Stewart really is a fan of getting retribution, and that's his right but it doesn't seem like it takes very much for him to deem someone worthy of retribution. So for someone with his eyes set on the championship, like the number 23, you gotta wonder if this was a prudent decision moving forward. He said later in the uh, post-race presser that he didn't by any means try to ride him off the track. He thought that Malcolm Stewart would get off the gas more when he realized that uh, Chase had him and had more momentum and he didn't. So he, Chase just put the bike in the rut and really gave it some gas. He said he was committed at that point. And uh, I think it's a fine pass for the lead at at Anaheim 1. It wasn't that bad. But uh, Malcolm Stewart did lose some time because he had to, he couldn't get back on the track. The triples were too steep. So he had to, uh, you know, uh, coast through the whole baseball stadium on the pavement to, to get back on the track. This, of course, allows Eli Tomac to catch up to him. And, uh, man, this guy, we've seen it from him so many times. Eli Tomac's like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where he's really great, or at least damn decent, even before he puts his bike on the ground. And then it happens... And he gets up pretty pissed off. He's uh, had a sip of his uh, go time juice or whatever it is, his ritual is, uh, anytime he puts the bike down. And he gets up like a man possessed and he rides like the guy uh, that you'd expect from a uh, so many multiple time champion. And in his beast zone or beast mode or beast mode zone or whatever you want to call it, He closed uh, literal seconds within the course of a lap. Uh, He was able to bear down right on Chase Sexton, who gave him a little bit of help in that uh, 4x3 triple section. Uh, I think he heard the crowd cheering as crazy as they were, and given the conditions, uh, I think he got, uh, I don't want to say rattled, but I I think it might have thrown him off a little bit uh, that Eli Tomac, had approached so fast, which gave Eli a chance to catch him uh, just after the tunnel jump, you know, and he was bearing down on him through that second set of whoops. And uh, in that right-hand turn there, he took Sexton high, uh, clean, but high, 
and it pushed Sexton out of the rut. And he had to uh, administer some fancy footwork with his Alpine Stars boots there uh, to keep that bike from tipping over on him. And uh, it just really showed the talent that he had that uh, he was able to save it at all. And with this pass and with this battle for first place, uh, we were treated to the same glorious spectacle that we got time and again in the outdoor season. These two going at it at an absolutely elevated level. The difference here being, of course, it's still early on. And instead of them both being elevated to the same level, while Chase rode a race that probably would have been good enough to take the W on any other night, uh, because Eli Tomac was at that next level, uh, he was unable to do it because he was unable to match him. And I expect to see Chase uh, gain that extra gear as the season goes on. Uh, in the in the post-race presser, he was clear. Uh, I don't want to say he was rattled in any way, but he was very honest about the fact that uh, this track was the gnarliest supercross track that he'd ever ridden in terms of the conditions and how sketchy you know, a couple of those rhythm sections were, that one in particular. And he said he was just trying to get the laps done without putting it down. Pretty impressive then that he led for so long, uh, if that was indeed his philosophy. He said after he cased that triple and nearly went down, it allowed Eli, Eli Tomac to close the gap between them, that he stiffened up at that point because everything was just so crazy and uh, was never able really to get loose again and to put in the lap times he wanted. But I wouldn't expect for that to be a trend on more groomed tracks or as we proceed farther into the season. And with this great spectacle between the two, and especially the spectacle of Eli leading, going down, and then regaining five positions in a, a mere matter of minutes, uh, to regain the lead from the same man he had to battle uh, with clenched teeth through the outdoor season, uh, it, it would seem at this point uh, that these events would have been a conclusion to the action, that the uh, best would have been behind us at this point, and uh, we were just going to ride this thing home. But not even one lap later, two turns later, Malcolm Stewart, who had also been penning that throttle, was still within sight of both Chase Sexton and Eli Tomac by this point. And this is, of course, where we see uh, the crash that uh, is in contention with Austin Fortner's crash for the crash of the evening. And I think this one takes the cake. And uh, I almost don't have to say it at this point uh, because... We already know what happens. He goes down in the first rhythm section. However, the difference is instead of casing that triple like everybody else did throughout the night, and even like he himself had done uh, just a few laps earlier, what happened it was, it was the first obstacle. He came out of the turn and he doubled up onto the tabletop. And this was a short tabletop, so you really had to gas it hard if you didn't want to endo uh, into the jump you were doubling off onto. Well, it looked like he crashed into neutral or at least, or, or shifted into neutral on accident, or at least that's what Ricky Carmichael uh, speculated on the broadcast because he got no forward drive. And sure enough, he drove that front tire uh, 
right into the uh, landing of the double. And he went down hard. I mean, he looked visibly rattled, uh, discombobulated, I dare say. And uh, the Alpine Stars guy that was trying to help him ended up falling over too. And they were hanging on to each other for a while, like uh, two drunk frat boys just trying to find their way uh, back to their uh, dorm room. And uh, I don't know how he was able to locate his bike, much less uh, complete the race, but he was able to. Sure, he went 16th, but the fact that he got back at all, I mean, this guy's not just uh, a mere uh, hard-ass motorcycle racer. He is an absolute warrior. And with that crash, he gave us what... uh, Certainly, I don't want to call it glorious, but it's not. But like it or not, we have to say, uh, aside from all the incredible racing on Eli's behalf, uh, primarily, uh, that was the gnarliest thing and the most unexpected thing uh, that happened all fucking night at A1. I mean, that really caught me off guard. Now, at this point, after all the wreckage was cleared away, uh, Kenny Roxon was in line to get a podium on the evening. He wasn't going to chase Sexton down, uh, but he could have held on to the third if it were not for two gentlemen in particular that happened to have other plans for the evening. One is Cooper Webb, and the other is Dylan Ferrandis. Ferrandis and Webb were unique in the sense uh, that their races mirrored each other. They were running good paces from the beginning. But just like Eli Tomac, after his crash, there was a point uh, towards the middle half of the race, or towards the end for them, where they really kicked things into gear uh, with just a few minutes to go. Ferrandis' charge actually came a little earlier, even though he'd end up going fourth on the evening uh, when Eli Tomac commenced his post-crash charge. Dylan Ferrandis tucked in right behind him and followed him through the pack, getting past Cooper Webb uh, with an excellent pass. Well, apparently Cooper Webb, a couple laps after that, did not like that very much and he found his uh, next gear and he he turned it on and he pulled the throttle and he ended up getting back by Ferrandis who had already made his way past Kenny at this point and uh, when Coop got by Dylan he set his eyes right on Chase Sexton uh, you might be surprised by it you know because uh, this dude I mean, we knew that he wanted to establish himself, but uh, considering where he started, a third place, uh, given the track NAR, would have been absolutely understandable. And yet he made it clear uh, that he was going to chase down whoever the hell was in front of him uh, now that he'd found whatever it was that made him comfortable, and he was in his zone. And the speed with which he caught Chase Sexton was absolutely phenomenal. His charge through the pack was objectively as exciting as Eli Tomax. 
Now, Chase, admittedly, he, he said it himself, wasn't having a great race at this point. And he was running 104 lap times. But uh, Cooper Webb was running 101s. And he ran 101s the last three laps of the race. Everyone else was running 102s and 103s at this point because the track had deteriorated so severely. Everybody else was running their one minute and 101 times in the middle of the race once they'd settled in, but before things had gotten so bad. And yet Cooper Webb was doing it uh, with the worst conditions of the evening after the track had just been punished hour after hour. Now, as if that wasn't impressive enough, when you consider Cooper Webb, you consider him sort of a, a technical specialist, not a guy that's necessarily uh, going to go out and gun it uh, through uh, horrible conditions and just hang it out. He's known for being able to operate in tight spaces to drive his bike in a phone booth. Well, there must have been something about the conditions that played to his technical bent, or else he was just so determined that he's so naturally talented, he was able to evolve with the track better than anyone else. But he absolutely put it down. And in case you don't think he was as fast as Tomac, keep in mind that Tomac got a great start. He did not have to climb through the pack on a track that was not conducive to passing. And if you go and look at the average lap times, this absolutely blew my mind, but they had to take it out to the 10,000th of a second to find a gap between them. They had identical average lap times coming in at one minute, one second, point six five. Now, everyone else on the evening, with the exception of Dylan Ferrandis, was in the 102s or above. Malcolm Stewart was in the 102s. And everyone else, pretty much, was running 103 and change. So not only does it show you that these two were on such an even keeling, but they were running at similar paces, uh, at a pace that left everyone else behind. What we got with Eli and Chase last year, we now saw with Eli Tomac and Cooper Webb, the two-time indoor champion, going at it Saturday night. Now, the final pass of the evening, worth note, was Cooper Webb on Chase Sexton, which kind of ties in since we're talking about it already. And it just showed the enthusiasm and the determinism that Cooper Webb is bringing to this season. He was uh, a second behind Chase going over this triple, and he wanted to set up the pass so bad, he completely flatted the triple. He jumped right over the last jump, jumped all the way into the turn. It must have been 100 feet. And then, like we were just talking about his technical skill, Instead of riding up the berm like Chase Sexton did, going through the ruts high, he made the turn on the flat. He didn't even go to the berm. He just penned that front brake, spun the back tire all the way around, keeping the front wheel planted. It's kind of his signature move. And he just penned it. And he 
went inside outside and got Chase just a couple turns later and then Chase just let him have it because he realized what was evident to us all which was that uh, he just didn't have what it takes to fight a guy uh, that was charging to the front like that. Now, obviously, there wasn't enough time left for Cooper Webb to make any real progress on Eli Tomac at this point. We were down to the final laps. He made the chase. He made the pass on Chase Sexton the turn before the white flag came out which I thought was uh, really poetic in a sense, you know? But if there had been longer in the race, I think he would have tracked Eli down. Now, I'm not saying that he would have passed him necessarily. I think it's completely plausible that if Tomac realized he had company, he would have put on the gas. And in that case, I'm not comfortable saying that Cooper Webb would have been able to track him down. But if you just look at the paces they were running at that time, the final three laps or so, and you were to assume those continued, Eli was running about two seconds slower than Cooper Webb on each of those three laps. Now, of course, he was probably coasting it to victory. But either way, I think it's worth illustrating just how fast Cooper Webb was Saturday night. And the reason I keep driving that home is simply because... Um, we haven't seen a Cooper Webb that could chase guys down in a while. We've seen a Cooper Webb that couldn't get a win. We've seen a Cooper Webb that could hold on to a place if he got a good start. But we have not seen the dominance from him where you can climb through the pack that uh, we've seen over the last couple seasons, and the last season especially from guys like Chase Sexton, Eli Tomac, and the man called... El hombre, right? And so I think this is evidence that uh, this guy's really coming to play in 2023. And I think it's really exciting, you know, because uh, we knew we were going to get a one-two great battle uh, between Tomac and Sexton. Uh, we've talked about it numerous times. And as exciting as that is, uh, you're always excited to see who else is going to be able to make it into the fray? And as we talked at the start of this conversation about the main event, there were a lot of guys who were looking to prove that they were going to be contenders Saturday night. Um, Cooper Webb was one of them, and Malcolm Stewart was one that I focused on a little less because uh, I guess, quite frankly, I underestimated him. But assuming that he can get healthy or that he is healthy and can recover from that crash. He said on social media that he's doing all right, but uh, what, is a guy that tough going to say he has a boo-boo? I, I don't think it's very likely. I don't think it runs in the blood of that family. So if he comes back next week and the number two and the number 27 are challenging uh, ET3 and chasing down Chase Sexton at night, I think that's going to make things really exciting, uh, even more exciting than they were already. And I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to take that much excitement without getting nauseous. So things have been elevated to an entirely new level, and I am absolutely here for it. And, uh, you know, we could talk about this all day, so we can just go ahead and wrap up here. Uh, two other guys I think worth mentioning. Uh, Dylan Ferrandis, 
you know, he ran the third fastest lap times of the night. I think he had the third best race of the night, uh, certainly if you account for all the crashes and mayhem that he managed to avoid. And it's great to see him comfortable. And uh, I was hoping, not too hard, because I didn't want to be disappointed, but it just seemed that last year's Supercross season was not illustrative of what he could accomplish. And if he could be up there challenging for top fives every week on the Star Yamaha, battling his teammates side by side, uh, I think that would be really great for the sport and something that I'd personally uh, really enjoy. Um, finally, we got to talk about Kenny Roxon. He's the sweetheart of the sport. He had Kickstarter Ken written on his helmet, uh, had that flow lady from the progressive commercial holding the sign in the illustration. And uh, isn't he just absolutely adorable, man? I mean, he really uh, hits it at every opportunity, just nails it right out of the park. But to see him go fifth was great, not only because of the bike and questions about that, and he could have struggled with setup immensely, but uh, because on top of getting that all dialed in, we know he's been having those health problems, and uh, we've seen season after season him get a great start, run the speed he can, and then deteriorate as he uh, fatigues through the course of the evening. That did not seem to happen tonight. Yes, a couple people got by him late, but he did not drop through the pack significantly. And the guys that were able to pass him were people who felt they were more on a mission, uh, certainly coming right out of the gate, and who were feeling a little more comfortable with the terrain, which would certainly be easier if you'd been riding the bike that you were on uh, for more than a couple of weeks. And yet, whether the old Kenny is back or not, I think either way, going into Oakland, we are in for a treat. I do not think this sport gets better than this. I think this is a beautiful time to be a racer, and I think it's a beautiful time to be a fan of it. So when it happens, we'll get right back on here. We'll meet back up, and we'll discuss what happened next week. Until then, I want to thank you all for taking your sexy asses and tuning in to the Sexy Ass Supercross podcast. Until next time, take care of yourselves and make sure to stay sexy, my friends. Yeah.